And then also, whilst you're turning there, if you would uh, turn to Acts chapter 17, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, and then to Acts chapter 17. So we're thinking about First and Second Thessalonians over the next few weeks and months, preparing for the coming of the Lord. And uh, this is Paul's, or these are, I should say, Paul's eschatological epistles. And we'll say more about that as we go. But uh, there's many, very many practical truths in these uh, epistles that are indeed addressed to the church at Thessalonica that will also prove to be helpful to us. But beside that, we find that uh, Paul will reference again and again in some form or other the coming of the Lord and encourages these believers to be prepared and ready for his appearing. Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, And verse 1, we'll just read verse 1 this evening. Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. We read there in those opening lines, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus onto the church of the Thessalonians. And the first question we should ask ourselves this evening is simply this. Who are or who were the Thessalonians? What do we know about their church? How did their church begin? What kind of people constituted uh, that church? Why did Paul write to them rather than visiting with them? And why did he say the things that he said in the first and second epistles to the Thessalonians? And unless you have the background information, unless we uh, go back and understand the context of this epistle or these epistles and the people to whom it is written, it, it will we'll find that it's, that it's not as easy to understand some of the things that Paul is referring to. So anytime we study a book in the Bible, we should consider its historical context and uh, know something of its background. And First and Second Thessalonians are no different in that respect. Now, these books were written around 51 AD. That makes them among the earliest of Paul's writings. And that's really important because most of the New Testament uh, had not been written as far as Paul's contribution. Most of the New Testament had not been written at this particular point in history. In fact, the only book that the church had in their hands from Paul was uh, Galatians. That was the only epistle that he had written to this particular point. And so these epistles, as I said, were written before the before the New Testament was completed, the canon of Scripture was closed. Now, as for the city itself, by the time Paul arrived in Thessalonica, this city had become a place of tremendous political importance. It was a city that had been founded some 200 uh, or, and 250 years before and had risen to become the capital of Macedonia. Now, within the Roman Empire, it was a free city. That means it had a great deal more autonomy from Roman rule than many, indeed, most other cities in the empire. It had a population of 200,000 people, 
which may not seem that large in modern terms, but actually in ancient times that makes for a rather large uh, city. And uh, it was a city of great commercial importance in New Testament times for two reasons. First of all, it was a major seaport. It was located on the Aegean Sea, on the northern part of the Aegean Sea, at the Thermaic Gulf. There were uh, thermal waters there. And it was also situated on a major trade route between east and west, between Asia and Europe. So let's have a a quick look at our our overhead. Oh, hang on. That's right, okay. I want, I want to look at this in a modern map because sometimes we're using terms like Galatia and so on and we don't all the time appreciate exactly where that is on a modern map. So if you look at the map before you, uh, if you you'll see Lebanon and Syria there and then uh, just uh, north of Syria you enter into southeastern Turkey. Now, uh, as you go across Turkey, that's basically where the uh, churches of Galatia were, uh, as you cross uh, the, the, uh, the land of modern Turkey, and Paul then goes into what is now northern Greece, just south of Bulgaria and north of Macedonia. And that little tag on the map is where Thessalonica is uh, to this day. So you get an idea of the place we're talking about. It's basically uh, a city in northern Greece. In fact, this city is a co-capital alongside with Athens in modern Greece. It's still considered an important city historically and in other ways. So it was a city, as you can see there, up on the the northern end of the Aegean Aegean Sea to the uh, northwest of the Aegean Sea and it sat on this route between east and west so you can see uh, Turkey heading into the east on the uh, on the eastern side and then obviously Europe is to the west of that little marker uh, on the other side so because it was in that location it was a vital transport hub it was a really important city commercially, and it saw a lot of trade passing through its streets, uh, both by sea uh, and by road. And so because of its trading road rule in the world, uh, Thessalonica, in terms of its population, became a cultural melting pot. People came from all over the world and settled in Thessalonica to do business. And so it's largely its citizens were made up of, uh, of Romans, of Greeks uh, and of Jews, as well as other nationalities and other peoples beside. So we can see in a large measure why it was that Paul was uh, was interested in this city. And as we'll see in a moment in Acts chapter 17, he passes to other cities en route to Thessalonica. He goes through Amphipolis, he goes through Apollonia on his way to Thessalonica. So he passes two major cities to get to Thessalonica in order to plant a church there. And of course, in terms of the cultural, uh, the population makeup of uh, Thessalonica, we can see why Paul was interested in it because uh, he was religiously a Jew. There are Jewish people there. He was, in terms of his citizenship, a Roman, a free-born Roman, and this is a Roman free city, and it's culturally Greek. And of course, he himself was culturally Greek. So it was a city that appealed to him. You know, when you think about it, one of the nice things about coming back home to Northern Ireland from England is that I can speak to you all in my mother tongue. (laughs) 
And people don't say, sorry, what did you say <laughs> so much? Um, but, you know, when you're away from home, you know, it's, it can be difficult. You use words people don't understand, the pronunciations they don't always pick up on. Uh, and so, you know, to come back home is really nice and be able to, even, even my name changed when I went to England. Here people say Moor, over there they said Moor. And so I had to relearn how to pronounce my name because everybody kept misspelling my name. Uh, so it's nice to come back and get my name back as well. And so there's the attraction in that. And you can see it for Paul. There's the attraction in going to this city because he would have felt very much at home among these people. So he arrives in Thessalonica as part of his second missionary journey. And uh, if you just look on the map there, you'll see where that journey was. He be- or it began. It began in Antioch, which was then in Syria, uh, but is now in Turkey. And he makes his way uh, through Galatia, revisiting many of the churches that he had planted there on his first missionary journey, Derby, Lystra, uh, Iconium, Troas, and so on. And then he intended to turn back toward the east. His intention was to go eastward. But uh, he heard the Macedonian call, come over and help us. And he crosses the sea there, the Aegean Sea, into Philippi. And Philippi becomes the first church to be planted in Europe. And then from Philippi, uh, he heads down toward Thessalonica. Now, the entirety of Acts chapter 16 is dedicated to Paul's church planting in Philippi. But as chapter 17 of Acts opens, we see this missionary band uh, moving further west into Europe. And as I said, passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia until they come to Thessalonica. Let's look in Acts chapter 17 and read verses 1 to 14, and we're given the whole historical background to this church. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went along to them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city where they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. 
Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to see, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. As I said, it says something of the stature of this city of Thessalonica in the ancient world that Paul and Silas passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia en route to Thessalonica. And the reason for that is because of its location. As I said, this city was a sitting located right bang on an ancient trade route east to west, also with this sea route and its harbor. And so it provides a natural bridge out into all the world. Remember the Lord Jesus said that we were to go and preach the gospel in all the world, to reach every nation. And so here's Paul fulfilling that great commission. He could have went to these other cities for sure, but Thessalonica opened up a door to the rest of the world. And we'll see that as we continue through our series. We'll see how the Corinthians heard the gospel even before Paul arrived at their door. They had already heard something of Christ, and we believe that was from the Thessalonian witness. Now notice, as Paul comes into the city, he goes to a synagogue of the Jews. That was his custom. He always went to the synagogue first, and Thessalonica had a sizable Jewish community. In fact, by the time Paul was there, there were tens of thousands of Jews who lived in Thessalonica. And though the text says he went to a synagogue, the fact of the matter is there were many synagogues in the city of Thessalonica. So it seems more likely that he went to the central synagogue. He went to the main synagogue at the heart of the city. So Acts 17 tells us of Paul's witness to this great city and its people and how the church came to be established there. And the first thing I want you to see as we look into Acts chapter 17 is how his witness was reasoned. How his witness was reasoned. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 of our passage. (laughs) We think out of the end of it. Is that it? Give it to you. Throw. There's no help in some people, is there? It was a super throw, too. Okay. There we go. All right, so we see how his witness was reasoned. Okay, let's look in verses 1 to 3. His message was reasoned. It says, And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Now, if you're one of those folks like myself who likes to mark their Bible and underline things, I would suggest to you that you underline three words here because what we have here is a wonderful instruction in the evangelization of the lost. And the three key words to underline in your Bible in the passage we've just read are the words reasoned, opening, 
and alleging. Those three words, if you can underline those words, because those are the practicalities of sound soul winning endeavor. A sound soul winner reasons, he opens the scriptures, and he alleges, he comes to a conclusion. Notice we read that Paul reasoned with the people in the synagogue. The word literally means he mingled thought with thought. Thought with thought. He didn't just come in there and rant at them. He reasoned with them. He got them to think about their Bibles, about what the Bible was teaching, about who Christ was, how he met the credentials of Scripture. The gospel is a reasonable message. It actually has an applied logic. It's believable when it's understood. But for people to understand it, they need to come to terms with its truths in a rational way. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. People have to understand what the Bible is saying to them, what the word of God is saying to them. And actually, those who preach a gospel that only excites the emotions, you know, who, who just come to a pulpit and their purpose is to make people cry or, or, or make people, you know, enter into sentiment with, uh, with uh, illustrations and anecdotes and stories or, or indeed just fill people with fear. If, if you're only driven by fear or by tears or, or by some other emotion uh, to believe the gospel, well, what you end up with is a shallow profession. Somebody who's not taken account of the decision they're needing to make. And so Paul was very careful that these people should be convinced because a man persuaded against his will is what? Is off the same persuasion still. A man persuaded against his will is off the same persuasion still. And we've all been there, haven't we? Where somebody persuaded us to buy something that we didn't really want to buy. And then when the salesman walked away and we put the item in our car, we thought to ourselves, what did I buy this for? I don't even want this. You were persuaded against your will. And you were off the same persuasion still. So the decision to trust Christ comes as much from the mind as it does from the heart. Now, we don't want to exclude the heart either. Because the human constitution is made up of intellect and emotion and will. And so the person needs to have all three aspects of his constitution brought into bear when he's believing the gospel. He needs to understand it with his mind. He needs to believe with his heart. And he needs to make a decision with his will. He has to act in his volition. Notice too that Paul, notice what he based his reasoning on. It says he reasoned with them, where? Out of the scriptures. He reasoned with them out of the scriptures. He didn't base his argument on felt needs. There's a great movement today that says the preacher has to find out what your felt needs are and then he should basically itch where that scratch is and people will believe. Friends, that's not gospel preaching. You've got a reason out of the scriptures. And uh, Paul didn't uh, base his arguments on human need. He didn't base his arguments on philosophy. He didn't base his arguments on cultural ideas. He didn't base his arguments uh, on politics. You know, many preachers get into politics. Let me tell you something. Politics never won a soul to Christ. Never. 
Whatever shale of politics you care to defend, your politics and my politics have never won anyone to the Lord Jesus. And Paul no doubt had his own political views, but he never shared those views. He was interested in teaching the word of God. And he unfolded the sense of those words that they were reading. That's what the word opening means there in verse 3. It literally means to expound, to open, to unfold. He explained the scriptures to them. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, when Philip comes along, he says, you know, sir, do you understand what you're reading? What was his reply? How can I know unless some man shows me? Somebody needs to explain it to me. And Philip did that, and he was was gloriously saved. So he opened the Scriptures. He explained the Scriptures to them. Now, understand, Paul was not a novice. He might have been a relatively new Christian, but he was not a novice in terms of the Scriptures. He was a highly skilled rabbi. Uh, he He was a ruler among the Jewish people at one point. He was a graduate of Gamaliel, who was a celebrated doctor of the law. And so for them to have someone who was a graduate of Gamaliel, in their pulpit was really something special. It was a matter of great honor. So they would have listened very carefully as Paul conversed with them, as he reasoned with them, as he mingled thought with thought with them, as he taught them the scriptures thoroughly and conversed with them about Christ and about salvation. And then notice that third word, he alleged some things. That is, having expounded the truth of God's word, He came to a conclusion. In soul winning endeavor, sometimes we call this drawing the net. Okay? Uh, Sometimes they, you know, the the reason some people don't get saved is because we don't ask them, do they want to be saved? We give them the gospel, they're listening, they're interested, they, they want to know what they're going to do, but we leave them hanging. Instead of saying, would you like to trust Christ now? Drawing the net, inviting them to the Savior. And Paul didn't make that mistake. He alleged certain things. He came to a conclusion and he made certain proposals to this congregation of Jews. And and if you look there, you see what his proposals were. First of all, he tells them that it was necessary that Christ should suffer. He was opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. He went into the Old Testament and he taught them about the idea of Christ's suffering. Now, this idea was completely at odds with their understanding of the Messiah. They had never envisaged this idea of a Messiah who would be a a redeemer. In their minds, he was always coming as a ruler, as a king. They were always looking for the crown, never anticipating the cross. Even though the cross is clearly presented in the Old Testament and is prophesied and predicted in many passages, somehow or other they missed it because they had been taught their whole lives the Messiah was coming to establish a kingdom from Jerusalem. They hoped that he would come and when he come would overthrow Roman rule in Jerusalem and in Israel and indeed throughout the known world. Now, no doubt Paul, in reasoning and opening and alleging with them that Christ must needs have suffered, would have taken them to places like Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah chapter 53. He would have led them to those passages and pointed out those predictions pertaining to the suffering Savior. Now, they wouldn't just sit there, you know, rather um, indifferently or, or sit there blasé and, and, and not offer, an, uh, offer some kind of counter to that. There would have been a counter-argument. 
There would have been those Jews who would have said, no, those, that suffering that's referenced in Isaiah chapter 53, the servant of Jehovah in that passage is Israel. There's people who would have argued against him. So he's mingling thought with thought. There's a discussion uh, going on here. And they would have disputed some of them, his teachings, uh, because they would have seen those scriptures differently. But Paul persevered. Notice he was with them for three Sabbath days, reasoning with them out of the scriptures. In other words, he took two to three weeks teaching these people. He didn't just come in and preach one sermon and leave and say, well, you didn't get saved, you missed it. He came back again and again and again. And what a lesson that is to us, because sometimes we witness to somebody and then they don't get saved and we think, well, I already told them and he didn't get saved. No, sometimes you've got to go back again. Go witness to them again. You know, very few people get saved the first time they hear the gospel. Most people need to hear the gospel several times before they're saved. And so Paul goes back for two to three weeks teaching these things in the synagogue of Thessalonica. Now, not only did he refer them to Old Testament passages speaking of Messiah's sufferings, but he also dealt with the issue of Christ's resurrection, possibly referring them to Psalm 16, uh, maybe to the case of Jonah, or again Psalm 22. Uh, but notice he, he says, uh, it most open, he says, opening and alleging, verse 3, that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. So he then concludes that this, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Now there's the bombshell moment. Okay. When he says to them, here's, here's the credentials of the Messiah. The Messiah has to suffer. He has to die. He has to rise. The Old Testament teaches this. He goes through the Old Testament scriptures, laying the groundwork. And then he comes to the big conclusion. And he says, and this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Christ. He's your Messiah. He's your Savior. Now that's a, that's a really critical moment. Because he's helped them to see that Jesus fits the bill. That he has all the credentials of being the deliverer, the redeemer, the Messiah of Israel. And the theological problem that his hearers faced at this point was this. They expected a king and a kingdom. Jesus was not a king, at least not in a conventional sense. Nor had he established a kingdom. Jesus gone at this point. He's ascended into heaven. There is no kingdom to be seen upon the earth. And so they're struggling with this. So what does Paul do then? He teaches them about the second coming of Christ and the establishment of Christ's kingdom. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's, let's go to 1 Thessalonians for a moment. The books of First and Second Thessalonians... Deal greatly with the second coming of the Lord. Indeed, sometimes, as I said to you, they're referred to as Paul's eschatological epistles. And eschatology is that field of theological science that deals with the end times. So this subject evidently had been a matter of discussion among them. And if you go to chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, he says this, and he's speaking here about the coming of the Lord. And he says, but of the times... And the seasons, brethren, speaking of Christ appearing, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. You see the phrase perfectly there. It means with complete accuracy. 
He says, you know, he says, you don't need me to teach you in this epistle all over again about the coming of the Lord because you understand this with accuracy. Well, how could that be? It could only be because Paul had taught it unto them, that he had shown them that Christ must die, that he must be buried and risen again, and that he is a coming king, that he was coming to establish his kingdom. Because their complaint was, all right, if Jesus died for me, if he rose from the dead, where's the kingdom? And Paul has said, I'm not going to teach you about the kingdom. So they understood accurately those eschatological truths. So his witness was reasoned. He opened and he alleged and he reasoned with these peoples. Then his witness was received. Let's go back to Acts 17 and verse 4. Acts chapter 17 and verse 4. says, and some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. Now, what do we find? We find that some believed, and according to verse 5, some believed not. You know, friends, the gospel is by nature divisive. The gospel always separates people. It sorts out the sheep from the goats. Uh, you think about what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. Of course, many people today, and certainly many of the ecumenical liberal type clergy, want us to believe that you know, Jesus came uh, as a great peacemaker and he came you know, to uh, heal division and to uh, bring reconciliation between different peoples. But what did the Lord Jesus say in Matthew 10, 34? Think not that I am come to send peace on earth, I come not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. You know, that's a really important thing the Lord Jesus taught there, because many people come to Christ, and then when they go home to their loved ones and say, I was saved, their response is anything but positive. You know, I, a man said to me the other day, you know, if, if I believe what you're telling me, my wife would throw me out. And he's not the first person who suggested his loved ones would throw him out. You know, when I got saved, uh, my parents, particularly my mother, was not happy about it at all. She was quite upset about it. And, uh, you know, was, was, you know, really having kittens about the whole thing. So this idea of the Lord Jesus came to bring us all together and it's, you know, it's a lovely, woolly idea. You know, it's, it's a kind of fuzzy, warm idea. But actually, the Lord Jesus came to divide men, to separate men, to separate the lost from the seer, the sheep from the goats, the believer from the unbeliever. Well, coming back to Acts chapter 17, we read that's what happened in Thessalonica. We read that some of them, that is some of the Jews, Believe. That's what it says there in verse 4. And some of them believe. Now, here's my question. <laughs> I'm almost like Pastor Rogers now, aren't I? Uh, here's my question. How many is some? It's an indeterminable figure, isn't it? You're not told how many. So some could be three. Some could be 33 or 333. 
We don't know what sum means. But if you take that word and you set it alongside the adjectives describing Gentile conversion, you get an idea. It says, and some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks of the Gentiles, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So the clear inference is that there wasn't a great multitude of Jews who believed. In fact, there was likely few Jews who believed. These other Gentiles that are mentioned here were people who would have been sitting in that gallery of the synagogue as Gentiles, listening in uh, on the discussions each week on the Sabbath day and really assessing in their own hearts and minds what Judaism was about and whether or not they wished to be Jewish. They were potential proselytes, if not proselytes already. So this mass of Gentiles, together with a few Jewish people, were those who were first saved at Thessalonica. And this is confirmed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I want you to see a very interesting thing, because what I'm telling you is that the Thessalonian church, unlike the church at Jerusalem, was not a Jewish church, but it was primarily a Gentile church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, notice verse 6. Paul says, to the Thessalonians, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sound out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Now watch verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now here's the question. Do Jews, did Jews at this time worship idols? No, they didn't. Gentiles worshipped idols. The Greeks were notorious for their idol worship. In fact, they said in ancient Athens, there were more idols in the street than there was people in the street. So the Greeks were notorious for their idolatry. And so in that respect, you see the Gentile character of this church. And again, this is important because in other epistles, Paul may refer back to Old Testament scriptures. He may refer them back to Jewish ritual and ceremony. But in this particular epistle and in Second Thessalonians, he makes no such references. He's dealing with Gentile people who largely do not have the same grounding in the Old Testament as their Jewish counterparts. So essentially, it is the Gentiles who form this church and who are in attendance, and those Gentiles were in attendance at the synagogue in Thessalonica who received the gospel message alongside the chief women, that is, women from the upper classes, women of considerable influence in that society. Uh, And so the mass of Gentiles together with the Jews that were saved, the few Jews that were saved, formed the first congregation of Christ's church in Thessalonica. Now here's the thing. Think of yourself now as the rabbi who comes to the synagogue on the fourth, fourth Sabbath. Most pastors I know do, how shall I put this? They do a mental roll call. 
on Sundays. And they're not so much interested in who's there as they're interested in who's not there. <laughs> okay, so pastor, you know, everybody's, church folk always get excited about who's there. It wasn't it good we had so many people here? And while you're thinking that, the pastor's thinking, ah, but so-and-so wasn't here. I wonder where he is. I wonder where she is. Well, rabbis were no different. So you can imagine the rabbi coming the next Sabbath day. He steps to the front on behind his little pulpit. And he looks out, and the chief women are gone. And the gallery of the Gentiles is empty. And to make matters worse, a few of his own Jewish congregation aren't sitting on their pews. How is this going to go down? Well, notice his message wasn't, wasn't only reasoned and received, it was resisted. And very often the gospel is resisted. Let's go back to Acts chapter 17 and verse 5. It says, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither or here also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them Now, although there was a large Jewish community in Thessalonica, as with most Roman cities, they didn't have a great deal of influence. Like everywhere else in the empire, Romans were favoured above others and above Jews in particular. And Jews were frowned upon because of their monotheism, because they worshipped just one God and not the multiple deities that were part and parcel of Roman worship. So it would have been very unwise for the Jews just to rock the boat here. You know, they were unhappy at these conversions. They were unhappy at this proclamation of Christ as king. It would have been very unwise for them in political terms to have made some kind of stand and and, and went after Paul and, and the Christians all by themselves. So what they did was they looked uh, out to those who, they, and I love this phrase in the authorized version, they looked to those who are certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Sometimes I like to insult people with that phrase. I would say to them, you're a, you're a certain lewd fellow of the baser sort. <laughs> it's a great phrase. Old English. What's it mean? Certain lewd fellow of the baser sort. Well, it refers to those who were called market loungers. Men who loitered around the marketplace. Uh, people who were looking for trouble. You know, they were, they were what my father used to call corner boys. Do you ever have your, uh, hear that reference? When I was a boy growing up and I would be hanging out on the street corners with my friends. And my daddy would see me, when he'd see me later on that day or the next day, he'd say, You're turning into a corner boy. And I used to think, well, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm just standing on the corner. But what he means is you're up to no good. You boys stand in that corner are going to get into trouble. You're, you're mischief making. You're, you're, you're forming a gang. You're, you're, you know, you're going to get yourselves into all kinds of problems. You were hanging around ready for something to happen. And so we were. 
And that's what these lewd fellows of the baser sorts were doing. They were the kind of fellows who hung around the marketplace looking for some action, looking for something that they could get involved in. So they were you know, barely a, a bunch of hoodlums, of gangsters, however you want to put it. And so engaging the services of these men, the Jews of Thessalonica set about creating a civil disturbance so as to stop the missionary effort of Paul and his team. So gathering together something akin to a lynch mob, they made their way to the house of Jason. Now let me ask you a question. How many times have you ever thought about this Christian, Jason. Did you ever hear him mentioned in church? You know, people talk about their favorite Bible characters. Nobody ever says Jason. I, I kind of feel sorry for the guy. Because he's really important to the beginning of the church at Thessalonica. But nevertheless, they go to this man's house and they demand that he turns the missionaries over to them. Okay? And Jason, who was in all likelihood a convert from that first wave of Believers out of the uh, synagogue in Thessalonica, uh, he evidently had afforded hospitality to Paul and Silas uh, and to others. Now, by the time the crowd gathered at Jason's door, Paul and Silas were gone. They had left already. They had been sent away, probably being tipped off by other believers in the city that the Jews were coming for them. So unwilling to leave without an arrest, The crowd laid hold of Jason and dragged him before the city magistrates. Now notice the charge. They said Jason had received those men who had turned the world upside down. Do you know what? Of all the things to be charged of in a court of law, that is probably one of the best. Okay, I've only ever been in a court of law once as a defendant. And that was for careless driving. <laughs> when I was very young. I'll tell you that story someday. But, um, but that was my... That was my but, to be, but to be standing in the dock as one who turned the world upside down for Jesus. There's no shame in that, is there? Wouldn't it be a good thing if we could turn this village of Points Pass upside down for the Lord? Huh? That's what Paul did. Correction, that's what the gospel did. The gospel turned the world upside down. And its message was placing the status quo upon its head. It was, it was changing everything. However, the real charge, the, the heart of the charge, comes in verse 7. These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king. There's the real issue. They're saying there's another king. One Jesus. That's the real problem. And so, any, you know, you think about it. Here's the irony in this. Those who concocted this charge were waiting on a Messiah who would be what? A king. So the issue wasn't with kingship per se. The issue was with Jesus being the king. That was the issue. You know, the only difference between the king the Jews anticipated and the one Paul preached was in his identification. Jesus and the lordship of Christ, friends, has always been a source of offense. When you tell people that Christ is king, they don't like it. When you tell them that they will stand before him and answer to him someday, they don't like it. 
Now, of course, any mention of a rival king in ancient times in, in the Roman Empire was taken seriously. And we see that there in verse, uh, verse 8. They troubled the people and the ruler of, rulers of the city when they heard these things. Yet such a charge was evidently unsubstantiated. So the magistrates, being apparently fair-minded men, realizing that Jason was not, uh, you know, some kind of uh, involved, some kind of insurrection, that he wasn't dealing in revolution, uh, they let him go. They were willing to let him go, but before they let him go, they made him pay a bond, or if you like, they they made him pay bail, if you like, and he was ordered to keep the peace. Now this bond was probably contingent upon the condition that Paul and the other missionaries were never again housed by Jason. That's probably the condition that they gave them. And a failure in this respect would have meant Jason losing his property and possibly losing his life. And this may be what Paul referred to in 1 Thessalonians when he said this, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. We wanted to visit you. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. In other words, if Paul had come back into Thessalonica, it was going to be a problem for Jason. It was going to be a problem for the Christians who lived there. He was going to bring trouble to their door. And it was better for him to stay where he was than to do that to them. Now, though Paul and his co-workers then left the city, and we read this in verses 10 to 14, and they moved on to Berea, and then ultimately to Athens, we find that the Jews of Thessalonica pursued him, that they followed him from town to town, that they wanted to shut him up and to close him down. Now, the persecution... And this is, this is critical to our understanding of the books of First and Second Thessalonians. The persecution of the believers in Thessalonica continued long after Paul had left. They continued to be hassled by the Jews in that city. And you see the depth of hatred the Jews had for the gospel. The fact that they weren't content that Paul and Silas left, but they went and followed them even into Berea and tried to, and chased them out of Berea. These people were fanatics. And so when they come back to Thessalonica, they continue their persecution of the church. So here's a brand new church. Baby Christians all over the place who've heard just the first things of the gospel, and day in and day out, they're being persecuted. Their lives are being put on the line. They're being discriminated against. They're being thrown out of their jobs. They're losing their homes. And that's an an important factor to keep in mind as we read the epistles, as we go through the epistles, because Paul's going to talk about that. And it's it's a key to understanding where they were with respect to their understanding of the end times. Look in uh, 1 Thessalonians. We'll look at a few uh, scriptures and then we'll leave it here for this evening. But I want you to see how Paul references this persecution throughout uh, this epistle. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6 we read already. Let's read it again. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. 
Chapter 2 and verse 14. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, He sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of gospel of God, and our fellow labor in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. So again and again and again, throughout this epistle, Paul references their troubles, their afflictions, their difficulties. You know, how different is that from the gospel of people here today? People hear a gospel that says, you know, if you come to Jesus, he will make you rich. If you come to Jesus, he'll, he'll sort out all your problems. All your problems will go away. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If you'll come to Jesus, you'll have no more illness. You'll have no more difficulties, no more depression, no more stress. Everything's just going to be lovely. Friends, that's the greatest lie in the book. Paul didn't suggest to these Thessalonians for one moment that if they came to Jesus, their life would get better. Quite the opposite, actually. And that's exactly what they found. The moment they stepped out for Christ, they were in Satan's targets. And so are you, and so am I. See, the Christian who never takes a stand is left alone. But the Christian who will be counted is the Christian that Satan will target and for whom persecution and affliction will come. So we're going to leave it there for this evening. And Lord willing, next Wednesday evening, we'll pick up in chapter 1, and we'll see the character of this church. And it's really a wonderful church in many ways. It's a tremendous example to us and to all who believe. But we'll leave it there for this evening. All right, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Before we do that, Martin has left some... uh,